Well, the lives of two people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world, Elsa. That's why you're getting on that plane. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. <laughs> it's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time turtle-headed ninja, Andrew Raphael. Cowabunga, dude! I totally love cocaine! I mean pizza! (laughs) (laughs) And for the latest episode, we are coming out of our shells to trade family-friendly blows with Teenage Mutant Hero... I mean, sorry, I mean Ninja Turtles (laughs) 2, Secrets of the Ooze. But is this Terrapin Ninja movie a radical time? Or is it less martial arts... And more martial shots. Find out after the trailer. New York, a city where 8 million can scarf down their slices in safety, knowing that when pizza is close by, help, help is never far away. <laughs> Any luck finding a new place to live yet? Well, you know, in this market, it's actually very difficult to find good subterranean housing. You'd think even an idiot could find a place down here. But no! Wow! And I thought all the really good dungeons were in Europe. The past returns, my son. Cowabunga! Radical! Pizza! These are just some of the words you'll grow tired of in (laughs) Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. The Secrets of the Ooze, a film in which four bell-end-headed nightmares <laughs> don't stop fucking talking for 90 minutes straight. <laughs> this comic book-based sequel finds our heroes on a journey of discovery as they attempt to unearth their origins. However, the only origin-based secret of the Ooze they discover is that, like all of us, it was spaffed up inside their mum by their dad after one too many shandies. <laughs> Raised by a racist rat voiced by serial kid tickler Kevin Clash, the turtles find themselves at the mercy of the Shredder, leader of the foot. Can our turtle heroes prevail without once resorting to any ninja-based violence, creativity or fun? Unfortunately, they do. So, Andy, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secrets of the Ooze. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah. And got to ask straight from the off, do you have any background history with... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, I do. I mean, this is a key childhood program, uh, like a key childhood franchise. Yeah. Because I grew up watching the the animated TV series uh, over here in the UK. It was Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, Mm -hmm. which confused me uh, as a child. And only, only recently I worked out why... And I do remember the uh, the theme tune of that one. Was it Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles? Teenage Mutant, Mutant Hero, Hero Turtles. Heroes yeah. in a Half Shell. Turtle, Turtle Power. Power. That one. Yeah, I um, watched that regularly. I don't think I saw Turtles 1 or 2 at the cinema, but I definitely rented them. And I'm pretty sure I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 at the cinema at least twice bizarrely that's the film i've seen the most i don't i mean i probably have seen both this and teenage mutant ninja turtles the movie but i have no memory of them yeah and the the most memory i have is other people talking about them and i'm I'm sure i've seen them at some point yeah 
But my living memory of these films is with the third one. That's the one that I remember the most, and that's the one that I remember seeing. Yeah. In fact, I watched both the first and the second one for this episode in particular, and I was quite shocked by how little I remembered of any of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So this was like a new experience for me. Yeah, it was a very different experience watching these films now versus how I perceived them back then because they're shit. Well, when when you're <laughs> like sort of six or seven years old, the, the things you appreciate about the film are completely different things to what the like the nuances that you pick up on as an adult. So yeah, it was really weird because I had a very vivid vision in my mind as to how this film was and it sort of met that memory but then in other ways it was so completely off my uh childhood expectation because i'm pretty sure it's been about at least 20 years since i last saw this film i think as well for myself like i have more knowledge of the teenage mutant ninja turtles as a franchise definitely from the cartoon that came out at the time yeah. Especially that theme tune. Yeah. And this is something that we always say about many episodes that we seem to cover. A lot of them, I mean, we, we should be calling this Nostalgia Cast because a lot of the times we're like, oh, yeah, it was ubiquitous with the 90s or, you know, it was inescapable in the 90s. This really was as well. Like, this was, yeah, this yeah. was huge when we were kids. But it's weird because it was never something that, that I was ever really into. Mm. I, I was never massive on this. And. I think I like appreciated more of the Jim Henson stuff more than I did enjoy the films even then. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I wanted to do this episode really to to find out really what I was missing out on. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we've picked Secrets of the Use, which is commonly known as being an incredibly inferior sequel that completely undoes any of the goodwill that the first one brought on side. Yeah, yeah. This series as well, it has quite an interesting origin. Uh, One that most people do know now, but it's worth to give a recap. In fact, it's very much tied with... Um, the likes of Daredevil, specifically Daredevil. Yeah. The, originally, the secret of the ooze was that the the ooze that fell on the Ninja Turtles is the same ooze that blinded Matt Murdock, <laughs> as is the law behind this. That was the original kind of like comedy intention. And um, oh, what were the name of the, uh, the the writers? It was Eastman and yeah, Eastman and Laird. Yeah, and uh, they were the original creators of the Ninja Turtles. And it was something that they just started doodling down one day as a bit of a joke. And the more that they kind of entertained the idea, the more backstory that they added to it, the less it became a joke and more of it became the first issue of something that they were legitimately making. But it was always intended to be something of a parody. Yeah. And I think that that bleeds through to the final product as well here, mm-hmm. um, especially when we look at like the TV show, the teenageness of them as well, and that kind of thing. Yeah, the the I mean the villains called Shredder after a cheese grater, <laughs> <laughs> literally because they wanted him to look like he had cheese graters for hands. <laughs> <laughs> But really, looking at Secrets of the Ooze, you are like a much more knowledgeable fan of things like Jim Henson yeah. out of the two of us. When do they become a part of the like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? When do they become a part of this franchise? Right, so the rights to make a film of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because the animated show is a separate thing altogether that was made 
quite a few years before they made a film and that's yes. the rights and all that for uh, are held by a different company entirely so they're almost like separate things yeah the tv show was like mid to late 80s yeah. whereas the first film came out in 1990 but yeah the film rights were picked up by hong kong production company golden harvest films which acquired a famous hong kong film studio mm-hmm. i think they co-financed Enter the Dragon in the 70s. Yes, I, I think they did. There's recently been a Golden Harvest box set released, I think, by Arrow yeah, Video. Yeah. That has a lot of um, those martial artist films included. Yeah, and they made, they made a lot of uh, low-budget martial arts films, uh, most notably starring Jackie Chan, and then later yes, yeah. uh, Jet Li, Donnie Yen, Cynthia Rothrock, all those kind of people. And they bought the rights for the Turtles with the intention of making a film for $3 million, shooting it in Hong Kong. They had very little idea as to how they were going to realise the Turtles. But in casting out the net for English language directors, it landed at the feet of director Steve Barron. And Steve Barron, he'd he'd made one theatrical feature to date, which was Electric Dreams, which is where the, the Together and Electric Dreams song comes from. Uh, he was more known at the time for being a music video director, so he directed music videos right, yeah, uh, yeah. like uh, like Billie Jean for Michael Jackson. Yes, uh, yeah. Amongst, you know, he did a ridiculous amount. I mean, of- if you look at his IMDb list, it is just like top to bottom music videos. For like some of the biggest stars of like the eighties and nineties, yeah. and he did uh, he did Money for Nothing, Dire Straits, which is quite a famous mm. music video. But around the mid eighties, he'd started working with Jim Henson. I think one of the first things he did was the music video for David Bowie's Underground for Labyrinth. You can kind of tell with a few little bits in this as well, <laughs> and. The year after, in 1987, I think he directed all the episodes of The Storyteller, which was a Jim Henson TV show starring John Hurt. And that was like an anthology show written by Anthony Minghella. Yeah, so they'd had had quite a close working relationship by that point. So completely separately, the turtles lands at his feet. And he's like, if we're going to do this, I want at least double the budget. And I want to use the creature shop to realise the turtles because I think I think the the Hong Kong producers were thinking that it was just going to be either guys in suits or animation to realise the turtles. Yeah. Whereas Steve Barron was being much more ambitious, and in the end, the the production budget for that film went from being three million dollars to thirteen million dollars. Of course, it did. Yeah. Yeah, and he managed to persuade. Jim Henson's Creature Shop to build and operate the animatronics and anything creature related within the film, which they were a little bit reluctant to do initially because Jim Henson was firmly into making family entertainment. And I think the violence of the turtles, like all the ninja stuff and using all the nunchucks and all that kind of stuff. It's strange that the violence of the Ninja Turtles is a sticking point. Yeah. Yeah. Considering like how non violent it is in retrospect now. Yeah. That first film is you know even. And it, and it's also weird when you take into context the films that he'd made like The Dark Crystal, which were 
not violent, but extremely disturbing in its, in some of its aspects. Yeah, nightmare fuelish. Yeah, even, even if you watch the the storyteller, a storyteller Greek myths, like that is pure nightmare fuel. If you've ever seen the um, storyteller Greek myths Medusa episode, the Medusa character that they created, played by Francis Barber, for me is definitive. That particular character is pure nightmare fuel. And I measure any other on-screen portrayal of Medusa against that one because it's it's even it's even yeah. better than the than the Harryhausen version. So yeah, it's a bit weird, but yeah, they were very um, unsure because of the violence. But Steve Barron was able to persuade them by saying that the action would be cartoon-like, which it was. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So they make the film. Uh, Golden Harvest, but they they do have an issue with getting a distributor on board. Pretty much all the major studios turn them down. Yeah, uh, and primarily because it was based on what was perceived to be a cartoon series slash toy line. Because the comic books were more of a cult thing, they were more internationally recognised as being a cartoon series and toy line. At this point, they right. were worried that they would have a similar box office bomb on their hands, very much like Masters of the Universe. Yes, yeah. So they were extremely reluctant to say yes to it and distribute the film. And like so many things, the project ends up at the last studio in town, which is New Line Cinema, Yep. <laughs> who um, agree to distribute the film. I mean, what studios do we have like New Line anymore as well? Like, yeah. for all the stick I can throw at them... They did seem to be the studio that would be trusted to take the risk. Yeah. To entertain the idea of giving a first shout to something that most other studios are dismissed completely offhand. I think nowadays we don't kind of like have that studio with that kind of maverick identity. Yeah. yeah. But um, the original film, it comes out on March the 30th, 1990, and is a huge success. Yes, massive. It makes $202 million based on a $13.5 million budget. Yeah. And at that time, it was the highest grossing independent film of all time. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention. With that being said, then, if New Line are the distributors, that does make this a, like you say, an independent movie, yeah. essentially. And it was the, the ninth highest grossing film of that year. Wow. That's monumental. So I guess that leads us really directly into Secrets of the Ooze. And considering the success of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you can't really blame them. The turnover, however, is incredibly quick. Yeah. I believe it comes out in 1991. Yeah. Oh, I've got a book. Oh, no. I've got a book. No strings attached. No strings attached. The Inside Story of Jim Henson's Creature Shop. It's one of my absolute favourite books of all time. Is this one where it's got all of his creatures in the nude? Like, fold-outs? <laughs> yeah. The Inside Story. Kemet um, the Frog, yeah. like, posed like uh, Burt Reynolds on his bearskin rug. But um, whilst we're in this interim period of the turnaround, because it's interesting to talk about what it did for the Creature Shop, because up until that point, Everything they'd done, they were based in London, in Camden Town, and they were based there for many, many years. Sorry, I've just got to say, in my head, I've been thinking, oh, what what headlines could I give for Muppet characters in a Playboy-type situation? 
and I've thought of one for Miss Piggy. Its headline will be Streaky Bacon, Chewing the Fat with Miss Piggy. <laughs> and I'd have her there yeah. with her bacon bits out. Anyway, that's that's where my mind's at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, animal magnetism <laughs> <laughs> with animal. My, my sexual harassment lawsuit. <laughs> with Tickle Me Elmo. <laughs> oh, dear me. I'm sorry. So, yeah, they, they, they were based in Camden Town and they were there for many years. But everything they'd done up until this point had been internal. So everything that they made was for something spearheaded by Jim Henson. So this was really one of the first outside jobs that the shop had done. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, it was quite a big leap. But in the other aspect, from a technological point, this was the first large-scale use of their performance control system, which Mm -hmm. was a computer puppetry control system, which they developed, I think, the year prior. It was a method to get away from radio control. Yeah and cable-operated puppets that they'd used previously. So many of the puppets they'd used in, say, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, and there's many other little productions in between, were mainly cable-operated, which meant that they literally had bunches of cables coming out of them, and they had to be operated by many different people doing different aspects. So the computer control system allowed them to combine different movements into a single control yeah yeah instead of having say five or six people operate a character you could boil it down to one and they tried this out on um storyteller greek myths they'd i don't know if, you, if you've ever seen the storyteller but i, I haven't but a, I, I know of it i've seen it on dvd and i've seen clips from it but i've not watched this all the way through yeah so the first series is john hurt as a storyteller and he's telling stories to his dog now the the, the dog's played by Brian Henson. And in that series, the first series, he was operated traditionally as a hand puppet with cable operation. Now for the second series, which was Michael Gambon as a storyteller, they rebuilt the dog with this computer control system, which was way more sophisticated. That that was the first real test of, of this technology. And the Turtles project meant that they could implement this on a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. And also one of the biggest challenges because the actors in the suits would be doing lots of stunts and martial arts and flips and all sorts of things, a large part of it went into making the suits incredibly reliable. Yeah. So they wouldn't break down, they they would work under extreme stress. But yeah, it was still quite early days. So the big difference between the Turtles in the first film and the Turtles in the second film is that in the first film, all the motors and servos were stored in the shells. Yes, yeah. When the second film rolled along, because the second film had a much bigger budget, I think it was like a $25 million budget rather than Mm -hmm. a $13.5 million budget, that afforded them the money to build the motors into the actual head. Yeah, yeah. So they could keep everything in the head. Although I think there was a, I think some of the designers thought they actually ruined the look I think they preferred the look of the first film turtles because I think the heads are a little bit more bulbous in the second one. Yes, they are. But it meant that they... They look a little bit more like strangled bellendy kind of look to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it meant that they could have everything in the head rather than having anything mm-hmm. in the body. But it's interesting because we, we were talking about the very quick turnaround, the fact that the second Turtles film was released just under a year after the first one. Yeah. So I say the, the first Turtle film was released March 30th 
1990. The second one was released March 22nd of 1991. Yeah, so it's, it's not much time at all, especially for like a, a heavy special effects film as well. Yeah. To be honest as well, like one of the things that I was quite surprised at going from the first one to the second one, like you say, there is a difference to the costume. And I was surprised that they changed the costume at all rather than just like be, okay, we've got a, y- a year to make the next one. It needs to be completed by this date. I would have expected the costumes would have just stayed the same and just completely ran in one into the other. Well, to give you an idea of the turnaround and, and, and the production schedule, so I have it in this book that originally they were meant to start shooting in February 91. But in fact, it got pushed forward to October 1990 so they actually started shooting in October 1990 oh my word released in mid-March so that just gives you an idea of how quick this film was made it seems like at one point they had the decision that it was going to be a two-year gap and then someone went I know let's just start filming four months earlier and we'll give it a year gap I imagine I imagine the Hong Kong producers were like we've got to capitalize on this yes yeah you know that 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 low budget thinking Mm -hmm. of course yeah because i don't think they were used to this kind of thing so it was more in their minds of like it's very much like canon films in a way where it's like we need to make another film yeah yeah makes sense straight away sort of thing to capitalize before before the trend dies and i imagine there was part of that worry that masters of the universe worry because Mm -hmm. with masters of the universe it took so long to make the film that the actual craze had died before the film came out. Yeah. So I think they were worried. If they took the foot off the gas, it would come to a a, a screeching halt. And to be fair, that did kind of happen for the third film. Yes. Because that film was actually made two years after. Yeah. And I think the craze had pretty much died down by then. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a completely like business cynical sense, I I understand where they've come from and how this film has been rushed through production. And I also remember I, there's a, like famous stories about on the um, about the actors on the first film um, wearing these suits that weighed an incredible amount, being tasked to, yeah. to, to do you know action scenes and essentially just like collapsing on set and fainting, and it was an incredibly mm. arduous job with all of these motors and everything that required within the suits to make everything work. That it was just such a torturous job for everybody involved and i understand that the second one that they weigh less apparently the suits weigh less i think um they use a different kind of yeah rubber or latex or that kind of thing as well and like comfort of the actors was made a priority because we do have a couple of actors that don't return or one actor i think in particular um that doesn't return for one of the uh turtle characters as well mm-hmm. isn't it um What's the red one called? Is the red one Raphael? Raphael, yes. The, the hot-headed yeah, yeah. one. Hasn't, hasn't he changed actor between the films? He's changed voice actor. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm all confused on that front anyway. But the, the guy who plays Kino, Ernie Reyes Jr., he was the body actor for Donatello in the first film. Right. And the producers liked him so much that they decided to give him a an on-screen role in the second film and Donatello was played by a different actor in the second film because of that. Ah, right, I understand. Now, any of our listeners may have been let into the fact and I'm glad that you seem to have the issue as well. After all the years of watching like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the cartoon, my son watches the new cartoon and we haven't seen the new Mm -hmm. film yet but he's looking forward to it. Um, I have no idea which one's which. <laughs> I know that Michelangelo is the orange one, and that's about it. I know the characteristics of each one. I know, like, Donatello mm. is, like, the leader of the group, isn't he? 
Or is that Michelangelo? Is he the blue one? I see, I'm getting mixed up with the names. Blue one is the leader of the group. Purple is like the tech guy. He's kind of like the sensitive yeah, guy. You've yeah. got the red one that's the hothead. And you've got the orange one that's the goofball. Yeah, basically. <laughs> if you ask me which one's which in terms of name, I have no idea. Although in some ways, they're, they're all the goofball. <laughs> yeah. It's just that Michelangelo's more goofy than the rest. I mean, talking about... Uh, let's get into like Secrets of the U's now. Yeah. Uh, talking about this film yeah, yeah. and what I thought of it. I, I watched the first and the second one back to back, mm-hmm. and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not well at the moment. <laughs> just to let everybody know, last night yeah. I was sweating. Is that like a fever yeah. dream? <laughs> <laughs> I was sweating last night. I'm all bunged up, so I can't really breathe properly. And I'm sat here watching three hours worth of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I'm having like this Jim oh, Henson God. feverish dream. But yeah. my my opinion might be somewhat skewed by that. I wasn't massive on the first one but i appreciated the work done in terms of like from everything from the jim henson side of things and i appreciate as well that the first one it has a little more going for it it's got a little bit more grit it's got a little bit more world building and it feels more a complete package the second Mm -hmm. one is like it feels like a bunch of odds and ends stitched together very quickly and it's not made with any real loving care. Yeah. There's some fun stuff in regards to the creatures that are created. And I know that we don't get Bebop and Rocksteady. Instead, we get the bastard sons of Bebop and Rocksteady in this one because they didn't, they were unable to use those characters. Or I don't believe that they wanted to due to some rights issue they may have faced. I don't think Laird and Eastman wanted them to use them. No. Yeah, they didn't create them. They were created for the TV show, I believe. Yeah, and they, they thought they were one note and... They just didn't. Nah, yeah, they just weren't keen on using them in the in the film. So instead, they created these new characters that are well fleshed out, well rounded, Oscar winning characters. <laughs> yeah, Taka and Raza. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we can't use Bebop yeah. and Rocksteady. They're very one note. Let's create these ones that are essentially strong babies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they are babies. <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't. I didn't watch the first one in preparation for this, but I do. I am very well acquainted with it. Yeah. But this one is, is, in a way, it's like a poorly made version of the first film. In a way, yeah. In a lot of ways. I mean, I would probably like the first one is like a three out of five film for me. I would say like it's. It's got a bit more atmosphere and it takes itself a little bit more seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas this one, it very much reminded me of, and I don't mind this film. But I, I want to kind of give an idea of the atmosphere it gives off and the kind of like chaos of it all. It kind of reminded me of the Goonies. Yeah. And the Goonies has this issue where all of the kids are talking all, all of the time, the time yeah. all at once. And I've got kids, when I go to see films, like, it's to escape them. Mm. You know, <laughs> when I watched this, I was start, I felt like I was about, uh, on the verge of a panic attack constantly because nobody would shut the fuck up. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like being in a place, you know, like when you go to, I go to like a kid's entertainment concert and everybody's talking always. Yeah. Or to give an example, my daughter had her seventh birthday this year and she invited six of her friends to stay over and I've oh, never Jesus. faced such chaos like it before. <laughs> and all the time they're talking at you just yeah, all yeah. the time and you're having three different conversations at once and that's what this film is like it's it's like being around people where they're just talking bullshit just talking absolute nonsense constantly yeah i just checked out at one point i think i made it as far as like when vanilla ice came into it so to the towards the end yeah but 
if you ask me what happened after that, it's all just a blur. I can't remember. You know, it's it's all it's all gone. I distinctly remember thinking last night watching this film and having not seen it for many many years, thinking, "Jesus, they are really shitty ninjas in this film. <laughs> they really like, are. The art of surprise is completely gone from like second one of them entering a scene. Yeah, it's like where you know you've got the splinter going. Yes, the art of surprise and silence, and then everyone's going, <laughs> like that kind of thing. It's like. It's like guys, guys, we gotta be guys. We gotta be quiet now. Okay, boom, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like, yeah. And then it's like radical. Yeah, and it's like they're discovered straight away by the Foot Clan. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, uh, oops. <laughs> it's like, and I mean, they never once take any of Splinter's teachings to to like none of that is ever utilized. No, whatsoever. At any point in the film. No. There's a bottle of strong spirits just out of shot from uh, Splinter's view. Because <laughs> he, he's, he's... He's down in a bottle of rat poison as we speak. Oh, uh, God, yeah. I'm done here. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand why it's that way. It's because from a very cynical point of view, probably in terms of like from a producer level, they're like, well, this is how kids are. And this is what kids want to see. Yeah, But I think you can do that. I mean, Spielberg is the master of having kids talk and having kids talk over each other, but still have them be endearing. Mm -hmm. Spielberg does that really well. So you can actually do that, but I feel like there's no finesse here. And um, Mm. you can tell it's a very much rushed production. And even straight down to the comedy of it all, I feel like the reason that they're talking is because there's so few actual jokes to tell. Yeah, I mean, we have... I've got a note here as well, like... um, things that we have in these films like in terms of references we have a ralph nader reference we have a mutual insurance reference yeah we have a reference to like humphrey bogart and casablanca mm-hmm. who's next is somebody gonna like reference peter laurie and m yeah you know it's like that's that's what the kids want to see these days you know <laughs> i was waiting for a rosebud joke yeah <laughs> But it, it feels like like a lot of producers who are very old sat around the table like, all right, so the one thing that this film is lacking is humor. Now I want you to give it as much comedy as possible without hiring anyone that's actually funny. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's it's missing like a Simpsons writer's room rewrite. <laughs> that's kind of like the vibe that it needed at this time. It's hard not to see the film now and and think about how incredibly rushed it would have been as a production. Yeah. Because it, it looks like a rush production. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's just being cobbled together from bits and pieces as quickly as possible. And, you know, for all its rough edges, the first film had quite a bit of ambition considering its budget and its origins. Whereas this film very much feels like a a Golden Harvest film. Yeah. Because I think with the first film, by the end, Steve Barron was out of the production and the film was being edited by Sally Menk and they didn't like her work so she got through off the production as well so at the end of that first film it became a Golden Harvest production ah, right. and this just carries that on through and I think that goes right down to all the decisions that were made to make it less gritty, less violent and even though it had double the budget it feels cheaper in a lot of ways weird to say as well like the april o'neill that i remember is the one that's only in the first film so i know i must have had to have seen that at some point Mm. because i was quite shocked to see a different april o'neill in the second one who is then april o'neill to in the third one as well yeah yeah um 
Whereas the one that I remembered is that one from the first one. So clearly I must have seen it at some point. Um, yeah, yeah. Where they've gone with like a kind of like Cindy Crawford, more kind of model-esque beauty for the for the second film. Yeah. Weird yeah, yeah. kind of relationship that they have with her, I must say, because she's mm-hmm. essentially the mother figure, but they all want to fuck her. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, got, it's a very strange dynamic there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She she's definitely slept with at least one of them. You know what? There's definitely some filthy teenage mutant ninja turtles porn out there, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. Which is technically underage, so shame on them. Mm, yeah, you know, you get arrested for that. Yeah, but it's definitely like April O'Neil ninja turtles stuff out there. I'm not saying well, to search thing... for it, guys, and send it to my email address, which yeah. I'll uh, leave at the end of the episode. <laughs> I think the other thing that surprised me watching it now is. In terms of the timeline, it, it it appears that this film takes place merely days. Yes, yeah. After the events of the first film, it does. Yeah, I think as a kid, I I didn't clock that. I thought it was you know a year had passed or something like that. Um, yeah, but it, it makes it appear now that it's literally like four days have passed or something like that. Yeah, since yeah. The previous film, it plays like a typical sequel of the time which is to basically do exactly the same thing again but worse yeah because you've got the same villains same group you've got the shredder and is it tatsu uh-huh. and the foot clan yeah the basic villains plot is the same which is to destroy the turtles there's no other villains plot <laughs> it's so lazy to the point where in both films at practically the same minute mark you have the same explanation as to their origin. In the first film, it's about 27 minutes in where they sit down and they talk about the canister that fell down. And and it's about Mm. like the 28-minute mark in the second one where a new character is Mm. introduced. As we mentioned, his name's uh, Ernie Reyes Jr., the the Keno character. And he sat down and we are talked through the Turtles' origins again. It's at the same minute mark. It's almost like that Transformers thing that we saw with that Red Letter Media video where they found Mm -hmm. that it just lined up. essentially like taken the same structure the same overarching story essentially yeah and just kind of changed the dressing yeah and even down to the fact that yeah that kenno character is the surrogate casey jones yes, is, yeah. who is is very conspicuous by his absence in this film considering the film is supposed to be taking place merely days after and it's even weird the fact that he uh, magically appears again in the third film yes yeah in the third one, they, they go back in time, right? Yes, to feudal Japan. Yeah, it's feudal Japan. And that's that's what I was talking yeah. to my wife about it earlier. And I was like, it's feudal Japan. And then I went, or it's a very racist modern day depiction of Japan, which I wouldn't put it past <laughs> this series, yeah. considering yeah. some of the people that are playing Japanese characters here. Yeah, the, the third film's weird because it's the lowest rated out of the first three. And because the the creature shop wasn't involved in the animatronics for that film, yeah. they they dropped out by then. I think they were handled by the All Effects Group, which I've never heard of. The the animatronics look quite a bit worse, mm-hmm. but at least it's doing something different. Yes, yeah, yeah, Whereas absolutely. This film does not attempt to do anything different no. whatsoever, other than make a a slightly more child friendly version of the first film the only new thing they they add is the is the super shredder at the end which was way briefer than i originally remembered because i thought that the the super shredder was around for at least like 10 minutes yeah but it's literally like 
a minute or two. It, 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 <laughs> we barely get to know him and he's gone. What did I put in my notes? Super Shredder, super stupid. Oh, oh my word. That's almost as bad as the final line of this movie, which is from um, Splinter, when he's like, oh, I made a funny. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that every single film ends with, I made a funny. Seriously? I'm pretty sure. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, yeah, because yeah, that, that's because he said, yeah, I made a funny. I made another funny. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the third one ends with I made a funny as I've well. I've shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> I made a funny. I made a funny in yeah. my pants. Oh, split <laughs> I also want to... We've got to address kind of like the elephant in the room, which is the fact that they are ninjas and they don't at all in this one in particular use any of their ninja weapons. They're ninjas that don't ninja. No, not whatsoever. <laughs> not whatsoever. In fact, uh, there's a scene in which Kano... Kano, that's from Mortal Kombat. Kano picks up a nunchuck and he's saying, what's this for? And I literally said at the screen, well, in this movie, it's for decorative purposes. (laughs) The background to this is that the first film came out and even the cartoon came out. So if you want to talk about like the reaction over here in the UK, Mm. but the first film came out and a lot of complaints were leveled at the film that it was too violent and uh, glorified violence for kids. And this was at the age in which um, things like merchandise from horror movies were being scaled back in terms of being aimed at kids and that kind of thing a sad sad decade in my opinion (laughs) and then in in the uk we we had to refer to this as the teenage mutant hero turtles because they had to change the name because ninja was apparently a violent name and this all contributed to the second film a much more family friendly less ninja more goofball comedy tone yeah but as you say it results in a film in which we have these ninja characters that don't ever ninja once and in fact even even with the first film and with all of these films including the michael bay one i think something that it's lacking that kind of um like golden harvest films have and or like jackie chan films or the likes yeah they have like extravagant stunt work and set piece work mm. not in terms of like it doesn't have to be the most elaborate and costly ex- or expensive set piece but they have set pieces that make you stand back and go wow that was dangerous or that was you know whoa how the hell did you do that i understand it's hard with these characters with all of the gadgets and gizmos going on but it surprises me that they didn't have like much lighter stunt suits where they could move more nimbly or if they did it didn't really come across And I think that's just in terms of the way that they kind of made these films. But throughout all of them, I've kind of missed that element of the kind of Japanese martial arts film. That's always been an element of them, but it's not in any of these films. In fact, it's like you say, it's more about the goofball comedy of it all. Yeah, I think for this one, the the influence of the the cartoon show was paramount. Yeah. I've not seen the new film, but um, I imagine it'll have a bit more of that in it yes yeah although i know that the origins are quite different in the new film i haven't seen the new film but i have heard good things about it and i know that it's reviewed pretty well and seth rogan and evan goldberg seems to have a much uh, stronger history when it comes to adaptions of these types of comics with the likes of preachers the boys and now teenage mutant ninja turtles i think they're more suited to that yeah but um I do wonder if we see any more live action version, what form will that take? You know? It, well, it entirely depends on who mm-hmm. who takes it on, doesn't it, really? Um, yeah. We've had one now where it's like completely animatronic. And that is by far the, the one that works better. And we've had one where it's completely CGI. But honestly, I think like 
you should be looking at a combination of the two, really. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as as a way to make these films now. That's a technique that's really come on leaps and bounds as well, because you've only got to look at characters like Grogu and, and many of the other characters that are in the, the Star Wars Disney Plus shows. They've really taken that and, and run with it. Mm. And I think that's become a much more respectable method within TV and film production, rather than instead of just going all CG. Yeah. They finally come round to actually thinking, oh, we can actually do this and and take elements of both. Yeah. I mean, the animatronics in this film are easily the most impressive aspect of the film. Easily, yeah. And even if it's not a particularly good idea, either, I, you know, with the Tucker and Raza, Razor characters, they're so goofy and they don't really add up to much in the end. No. But you appreciate the work that's gone into them. I actually I actually quite like them, to be honest. I thought that they were kind of endearing, yeah. especially when David Warner's like, they're babies, they're stupid babies, but they're babies. And it's like, yeah. I can't believe like David Warner, you've got David Warner acting with these kind of like wailing puppets. But I, I did quite like them. And I think one of the, one of the notes I wrote right here is, please don't kill the baby monsters. Um <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I, yeah. I did like them. But, I mean, David Warner's a weird one in this film because they kind of set him oh, up as yeah. being the villain. Yeah. And he doesn't have an arc or anything like that. No. He gets kidnapped by Shredder. By the end of it, they act like he's been a good guy all along. Yeah. But he's not changed in any way, shape, or form. No. That's a weird one for me. And they don't even follow his character at the end. It's, it's in, it was in the news report, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, David Warner in this film is just bizarre (laughs) even the fact that he's in this film is just weird i mean i do like david warner in anything really yeah be in shit films and it's still always uh, it's a welcome sight to see but yeah his inclusion and and what he's doing in the film is just strange yeah there's no uh other way of saying it really and even when he's dancing at the end and stuff and it's just yeah it's (laughs) one of those where it's like it's obviously just a paycheck job for david warner (laughs) Uh, yeah it's like one of those before every take he gets his agents call him up and just tell him how much he's being paid and he's like okay 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 i'm ready (laughs) yeah it's paying for my extension (laughs) (laughs) one of the turtles sounds like ray romano in this film isn't that Raphael as well? That's Raphael, yeah. That's his voice has yeah. changed, yeah. But yeah, he sounds like Ray Romano. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, the only thing I, I liked and I really liked even as a kid. The pizza. Especially if you watch them in sequence because they, they have their sewer layer in the first film which gets infiltrated. Yeah. And then in the second film, they find the train, the subway station. They use that again in the third film. I always liked the look of the subway station yeah. sewer layer yeah. cuz it just had so much uh, there was so much to look at it was just a really nice environment. Yeah. And they make much more of it in the third film. I mean that that leads me on to something like with that set in particular and isn't like I don't mind the junkyard set as well. There are a couple of sets where um they bring out a lot of color for this comic book adaption which yeah. I think about the other comic book movies of the time and obviously batman is a reference point for a lot of you know these kind of films it's very much the opposite end of the spectrum in that this is a very colorful film they are green for crying out loud and they wear different colored bandanas however despite like how good that set is and how good maybe one or two other sets are and you know how good the animatronics are and the creature work it's so flat in terms of its cinematography the picture is so flat the lighting is so flat 
Yeah. I mean, there's that whole set in the scientist lab that looks like it was... <laughs> it looks like a set from... A Roger Corman film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like a Roger Corman, perfectly, yeah. 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 There we go. It, it looks like so last minute thrown together with cardboard and a couple of like and a, and a lot of different blinking fairy lights yeah, yeah that's all that they've got going for it but and and it's like there's no atmosphere there's no depth of field or anything like that it's just all like bang there it is yeah it's like they decided that they need a lab set two days before shooting <laughs> yeah and the production designer's gonna go gone oh shit let's yeah. just use some cardboard spray paint it silver and cut some <laughs> holes in it and stick some lights through yeah they tell the production designer it's like ah, it's all right it'll only be it's only for like 45 seconds of the movie and then the day of production yeah, yeah. like all right so for this next 15 minute section of the movie <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be in this cardboard set yeah and there's some quite suspect uh, translites as well in this film where you yeah. can see that it's like it's been shot in a in a very small sound stage uh, and they try to extend it out for, for like a New York scene and it, it do, the perspective doesn't quite work because no, no. they've either not got the skill or the time to to really line up the shots and and, and or do anything interesting with the lighting uh, like like I said before, this film was started shooting in October for a, a mid March release. It's crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's fucking crazy. So yeah, the the film looks incredibly flat and incredibly cheap to the point where even when I was little, I do remember thinking that the second film looked older than the first film, just because the first one had a little bit more atmosphere going for it. Mm. Even that opening sequence where they're in the little like shopping center oh yeah arcade yeah. thing when they're having the fight with and this is that's where you really sense how they've taken away all their weapons because they're fighting with yo-yos and hot dogs yeah and, yeah you know all that kind of stuff and and one of them pretends to be one of those kind of like rocking back and forth inflatable clown things i mean i i watched this on on the dvd which is an incredibly poor print of the film so it's really washed out as well to be honest i watched this on paramount plus and like I say, it was a lot more colourful, but it was still a pretty bad print. Yeah, I've not picked up the Blu-ray, so I, I can't comment on that. But yeah, it's yeah, it's not a film that's been made with any kind of TLC yeah. to it. It's very much a conveyor belt sequel. There's one thing I do want to mention, though, like one of the um, final things for myself, and that is just in regards to pizza. Yeah. Now, when I think about being a kid and I think about pizza, I always think about the cartoon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I think about the pizza in this film as well. Yeah. Did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles start like the pizza boom of the 90s? Well, I don't know. Because I almost feel like it did. Because I feel like a load of pizza places suddenly opened around the 90s. Yeah. And as a kid, I remember like when we got pizza takeaway, it was like a big thing. It's like, wait, here we go. But yeah, there used to be all sorts as well. Like you didn't just have Pizza Hut. And it was like you had takeaway pizza shops, like yeah. independent takeaway pizza shops. Now it's all like, you know, it's mainly a kebab shop, but they all will also do pizzas, you know? <laughs> I watched this film with a frame of mind that replaced pizza with cocaine. You know what? Yeah, that, that explains a lot. <laughs> and it, it explains so much as to the behavior of the turtles. But what also shocked me in the first one is that 
the pizza looks fucking gross. <laughs> it looks yeah, yeah, hor- yeah. It looks horrible. It's like got yeah. this. It's supposed to be cheese on it, but it doesn't look like cheese. No, it does not look like cheese. So what? One plus point to the sequel that the pizza looks better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least it's got a scene in an actual pizzeria with people eating real pizza. In the first one, it looks like you know. Yeah, yeah. Jim Henson supplied the uh, the toppings himself. Oh. <laughs> Oh, and also, this one is dedicated to the memory of Jim Henson straight from the top. And you've got to say, like, of all the things you could have put, like, the dedication to his name is the subpar sequel to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Secret of the Ooze. Secret of the Ooze. Dedicated to Jim Henson. (laughs) The ooziest man we knew. It's the most respectful thing the film does. What the fuck was the Secret of the Ooze? I don't know. I I didn't know that there was a secret. Like, they kept talking about the secret of their origin. Was that the point, though? There was no secret. Yeah. I guess because so. they they thought there was going to be more behind it, and actually no, it was just some stuff got chucked down a drain and yeah circumstance, and there, and there you were. I think the title was meant to be ironic. <laughs> yeah, and you got raised by a rat that was what is it raised by a rat that used to be owned by some sort of martial artist, a ninja master. Yeah, a ninja master. So is that rat doing? A bit of cultural appropriation with its voice. I don't know. Wasn't he a Japanese rat? Oh, is he? Yeah, because he was the he was owned by the Ninja Master, and it was the Shredder that killed the Master, wasn't it? Oh shit! Of course, yeah. Like I said, that goes all out of the window in the second film. Like, yeah, it does. The, the, yeah, yeah. The first film has genuine backstory and stakes to it. Whereas the second one just completely jettisons anything of that. I was probably in such a feverish state by that point, and there were like yeah. baby turtles that looked terrifying dancing on the screen, and I'm like, oh my god, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> it, it is weird that they bring back the Shredder in this as well, because the first film gives the Shredder such a definitive end. I mean, oh, he lands in the back of a like a garbage truck and kind of like start from there, but it does feel like it's an end for that, and they could do something completely different this time around. Yeah. But they haven't really given themselves the time to think about it. No. I think that third film would be more well regarded if it had been the you know the second essentially kind of thing. Yeah. I say that having not seen it since I was like eleven or twelve years old. As a plus point, Stuart Wilson's the villain in that film. Stuart Wilson, which one's he? Oh, the the he played the bad dude in Luther Weapon Three, and he's in um, Hot Fuzz. Yes, yes. Oh right, oh, of course, yeah. So you've got yes. that. And the first film does have, like, a very, very, very young Sam Rockwell in it as well for, like, ten minutes or five minutes. And this film has Vanilla Ice. (laughs) (laughs) And Ninja Rap was born. That genre mainstay that we all know and love these days, Ninja Rap. You know what? The rap in this film, like, considering it came out in the 90s, when, like, the rap boom was happening, you know, in the Bronx and everything like that. I, I love hip hop and my like the hip hop I love is like from the nineties really as well. Yeah. But <laughs> anytime you do hear rap, it's like sanitized nineties rap that it's always in these kind of films where people are rapping like I go to school every day and I get good <laughs> grades because I'm here to stay. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, middle-aged white America positive reinforcement rap. <laughs> it's its own subgenre. It's like those raps that you get on um, when Red Letter Media do their um, Wheel of the Worst. And they have those kind of like those um, <laughs> youth videos, it is. like self-help videos, and they always have a rap in them. And it's because we want to get to the kids, you know? We want to speak to them on their level. 
<laughs> it's like uh, them talking about um, Mormonism, but in rap, uh, <laughs> like Jehovah's Witnesses talking about their religion in rap. I went, used to go to a youth group when I was a kid, um, like a religious one. I've never been religious really, and we only went to it because it was like yeah, it was free. <laughs> yeah, it was free. <laughs> we played pool and darts. And you had to listen to 10 minutes of them talking about God. And at one point, like, we had, I think it was called the God Squad or something like that. And they were, like, some mm -hmm. uh, rappers and rockers that turned up to do, like, a little concert for us, you know. <laughs> it was fucking yeah. awful. Yeah, I'm sure I had a, at least one school visit from a, a drama group like that. Oh, what's the one from League of Gentlemen that always... Uh, Legs, Legs Akimbo. Kim Legs Akimbo, yeah. Legs Akimbo, I always think of them. You know, Legs Akimbo made me stop doing drama. <laughs> I distinctly remember in like um, college level theatre studies and it was like my end of year production that I had to put on. And I remember being on stage and I was doing like something, you know, like where everybody freezes and then I walk out and I do a monologue about how I'm feeling at this time. And halfway through, I was like, sure I've heard this in Legs Akimbo. <laughs> at that moment, a switch went off and was like, it's not for me really this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, did this uh, get the go ninja, go ninja, go in you? No. It was a no ninja, no ninja, no. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that one says, um, when they're trying to watch TV, and one of them says, hey, is Oprah on? No teenager's ever said the words, is Oprah on right now? <laughs> I want to know what her middle-aged book recommendation will be this week. <laughs> it's like us being here at, like, at 15 years old and being like, oh, can you turn off your pop music? I want to watch... This morning with Richard and Judy. I'm pretty sure in the in the third film that Michelangelo wears a, a lampshade on his head and has a hula skirt or something like that. They don't put on like rice paddy hats or anything like that, do they? No, they don't. No, they wear like because it's like some magical like ancient device, like this like egg timer thing that they've got. But they end up basically getting body switched with the samurais. Or the Ronin. Oh, right. Yeah, there's a little subplot set that takes place in present day where the there's four feudal Japanese people that have taken place, so they're actually in, in hanging out in the sewer layer so, with so, with Casey Jones and and Splinter. So, so on one level, we've got like it's a uh, a travel back in time story, but on another level, it's like fucking Vincent Ward's The Navigator. Oh yeah, basically. Where we, yeah. <laughs> where we have people from the past in modern day New York being like, "Oh shit, what's going on?" <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. The, the the third one gets a lot of a lot of shit, and it's not good in any way. But it's trying. It attempts to do something different and new because it's not even based on any any of the comics or anything. That is mm -hmm. doing an entirely new kind of story, which is much more seeded in in the ninja part of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. Yeah, it's got that going for it. And again, it's got Stuart, Stuart Wilson as the villain. And it's a bit more cinematic as well as a story. Even though the animatronics aren't as good, it looks better than the second film. Yeah. There's not much to recommend in the second film other than if you're feeling a little bit nostalgic for it. Like I said, it feels older than the first one. It feels more like an 80s film. It does. It almost feels like a, a dry run for the first one, <laughs> you know, in that yeah, kind of way. Yeah. Like, oh, we kind of cut our teeth with this one, but we know what to do better in the next one. Yeah, it's a really odd film. And again, yeah, it doesn't hold up so many things that you watch in your childhood that you thought were good aren't. I mean, there's so many things that actually genuinely do hold up things that I watched, but this is not one of them. Yeah. It didn't bring back those feels for me. <laughs> no, no, same. I got a few pangs during the first one. I think I think definitely if you've got an itch to watch any of these films, watch the first one. Yeah. 
definitely. All you're getting with the second one is the same but worse. It's just worse in pretty much every way but one. It's reheated pizza. <laughs> it's reheated pizza. But the cheese has gone all funny and the base has gone soggy. See, now you're talking, yeah, because sometimes yeah. reheated pizza is fucking good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, they, they, you've reheated it in the microwave. Uh, okay, so I think that's all we have to say on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Secrets of the Ooze. We're now going to go through the stats and facts for that film just to see what the critics thought of the film when it was released and what the box office reception was for the film. Now, as we mentioned before, the box office for the first film was rather good. But let's begin with the critics. Now, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has a 35% tomato meter reading, and that's with 43 reviews. The critics gave the film a 4.7 out of 10, and the critics' consensus is that not only is the movie's juvenile dialogue unbearable for adults, but the turtles' dopey and casual attitude towards physical violence makes them poor kids' role models. To that part of it, I say, fuck off. <laughs> Does it matter? I, I, I hate when like we have films like this where there's a prudish nature to it. Mm, yeah. Especially like now, in the world of Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything like that. To look back on this, it seems almost quaint to call it, like, overly violent or anything like that. Yeah. And in regards to the audience score, it's actually on the positive side of things. It has a 67% score, audience score, that is. And that's after over 100,000 ratings. And they award the film a 3.7 out of 5 average rating. Um, And on IMDb, the film has a 6 out of 10. Now, the critic that we're turning to once more is Roger Ebert. And um, he says in regards to this, and it's more of a summary of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise as a whole, because he was somewhat positive about the first one. Mm -hmm. And on this one, he seems almost like, well, this is the medicine I get for being positive about the first one. (laughs) And he says, I liked older superheroes better. The ones that stood out from the crowd had their own opinions and were not afraid of ridicule and symbolized the future of truth and justice. Spider-Man and Superman represented democratic values. Today's kids are learning from the turtles that the world is a sinkhole of radioactive waste, that it's more reassuring to huddle together in sewers than take your chances competing at a street level and that individuality is dangerous. Cowabunga. <laughs> he actually ends it after saying that with Cowabunga, <laughs> which is honestly the perfect ending for that for that review. And he, as I say, he gave that a one out of four rating. So Roger Ebert, not a fan. Oh. Um, so we're going to move over to the box office reception for this film. And Andy, you have some numbers for us. Yeah, so yeah, the film was released on March the 22nd, 1991 in the US on a budget of $25 million and in its domestic opening weekend it made just over $20 million and was number one at the box office and it's a bit weird with the worldwide total because I've just got it as the domestic total is the same as the worldwide so I'm not sure which one's right but worldwide it ended up making $78.6 million which is good Nowhere near the uh, uh, the level of the first film. Yeah. Although I think it did very, very well on video. I was just looking before for rentals. It made about 41 point something million for video rentals. So it made quite a lot of money back also with the video. It made that dollar bill, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it opened to number one uh, that week at the box office. So uh, number two was 
<laughs> the Silence of the Lambs uh, in its sixth week. Silence of the Lambs is, is a hell of a film to, for this to be up against in in its week of release. Uh, number three was New Jack City. Um, number four was Class Action. Number five was Sleeping with the Enemy. That's the Julia Roberts film, I do remember. Number six was Dances with Wolves in its 20th week. Oh my gosh, that's, that's a real run. Number seven was The Hard Way. I believe that was um, James Woods, I want to say. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Oh yeah, Michael J. Fox and James Woods. And Stephen Lang, John Badham. Number eight was Home Alone in its 19th week. Wow. Wait a minute, this is March, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so th- that Christmas movie, Home Alone, <laughs> still in the top ten. <laughs> yeah. Number nine was The Doors. Yeah, that Oliver Stone pick me up. Have you ever seen that? I've not seen it, no, but I, I know I know of it's it. It's everything bad about biopics. You must see it at some point. It's it's kind of a bit cringe as to how it, uh, it um, all the pieces join together. Has it got like a Jimmy Cox vibe to it? Yes, very much so. I feel like <laughs> The Doors was, was a, a primary inspiration for the Jimmy Cox story. Oh, that's, um, that, I'm, I, I like yeah. the sound of that. Yeah, it's 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 one to watch, uh, and also because of Val Kilmer's. It's weird how cliched is put together versus Val Kilmer's completely complete committal to the role. Yeah, it's definitely something to behold. And at number ten is the perfect weapon, which is uh, my wife's nickname for me. (laughs) Kinky sex comedy. There we go with that. So it was like, as we say, a success. We can see why they went on to make more, but um, it's certainly not the heights of the first film. There's no getting away from the fact that this feels very much just like a, a, a cheapy, rushed, cashed grab of a film. And I wish I could say otherwise, because I used to really love these films, but it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the same. I think, uh, as I mentioned before, everything this film does, the first film has already done better. Yeah. And if after the first film you've still got a hankering to watch something of this ilk, something with these kind of practical effects, jump to the third one. It, you know, I've not seen it in years. I've not seen it in like probably twenty plus years. It's more, it's more. It's the more interesting of the two sequels, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's still at least trying to do something. And I will be seeing the new one because I think it looks really good. I really like the animation style, and my son wants to see it, so I'm quite looking forward to that coming out. Yeah. Okay, so that's all we have time for on the latest episode of our show. And um, Just before we move into what's due up next on our next episode, I want to mention that over the past few months, I've guested on another podcast, Nostalgia Cast with our good friend Darren Lundberg. That series now has come to a close, uh, but I will recommend you go back and listen to it. I was on the Forrest Gump episode. That was something that we discussed on there. But on to our next episode, what we will be covering next week. It is our 100th episode, Andy, and it only took us 14 years. (laughs) 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 So, Andy, I'm going to hand it to you, mate. You know, it's been a lot of hard work for both of us getting here, but what film yeah. are we going to be covering? And I, I'm handing it to you because this all started really in your bedroom, in your mm. recording studio, in your yeah. in your old flat. So uh, I'm going to hand it to you to introduce what the next 100th episode will be. Yeah, so we will be covering another quality film made by a visionary filmmaker. A true auteur. You hold the respect of of many. David Lynch, right? Yeah, we are going to be reviewing the David Lynch of 
terrible movies. <laughs> we will be we will be reviewing Neil Breen's magnum opus, Fateful Findings. I seriously cannot wait because although I've seen this film in like quotations, yeah, I've never seen this film. I've never no. sat like through it in a single sitting. Um, mm -hmm. And Andy, I can't believe you've done this to me. I cannot believe that you did this to me, Andy. <laughs> I yeah. cannot believe no. that you've done this. Gaz, you, you, you're putting too much emotion in your voice. I'm sorry. I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but until then, I've been Gareth. And I'll be uh, throwing myself over my uh, IKEA computers whilst eating pizza <laughs> laced with cocaine as long as it isn't jim henson's pizza because we've seen how he makes them <laughs> I, I don't want to be tasting jim henson's pizza he's been he's been dead for 33 years mate <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why it looks so gross <laughs> but until then thanks for listening sorry jim <laughs> sorry jim <laughs> <laughs>